0: All of the great founders that I've worked with are just evangelists about what they are building and believe so strongly that this product and company has to exist and that it's going to change the world in these incredibly powerful ways.
1: Hi, I'm Lindsay Kaplan.
2: And I'm Carolyn Childers, and we are the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business.
1: And on the new rules of business, we take on a complex, even divisive leadership issue. We invite some of the best business minds to unpack today's most nuanced questions. So today, we're diving into growth capital. Now, everyone knows what venture capital is. A VC investor takes a bet that a little no-name startup will one day be a big-ass company and 100x their return.
2: What people are probably less familiar with is the side of investing known as growth capital. Think of it as the high-stakes betting of VC. Rather than making a bet on a wild card that sounds like it has potential, growth capital investors write big checks to a handful of more mature companies that they think will change the world.
1: Yes, and at this stage, a lot of companies achieve unicorn status, what the industry refers to as those rare startups that hit a billion-dollar value. And becoming a unicorn is so rare; there are only one thousand companies worldwide. Which, by the way, only
2: fifteen percent of those are led by women founders. And this is something we know a little
1: bit about. Not to humble brag, do it, Cece. Humble brag away.
2: But at Chief, we've recently raised a round of funding that valued us as a new unicorn.
1: And the thing about unicorns is that while it's an amazing milestone, a great unicorn needs to turn into a Pegasus and fly.
2: So today we're talking to the growth capital investor who led our latest round of funding, Layla Sturdy. She's a general partner at Capital G, the independent growth fund of Google's parent company, Alphabet. At CapG, Layla led growth stage investments in companies like
1: Duolingo, Stripe, and now Chief. We'll discuss the hallmark traits that she searches for in the leadership team, pitfalls to avoid when entering hypergrowth, and how companies in this crazy market can soar. Layla, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Terrific.
2: Well, thank you for having me, and I'm really excited for the conversation. Awesome. So I think for a lot of our listeners, they might think about venture capital as just like one big entity of investment, but there's so many nuances in there. Can you talk a little bit more about where you really focus from either an industry perspective or a stage perspective? And you and Capital G, where is your focus area?
0: Absolutely. And I think this is something that A lot of people, it's hard to understand from the outside. And the reality is that different types of investing are very, very different. And it really has to do with the maturity of the company. So the earliest stage when entrepreneurs, and Carolyn and Lindsay, you know this well, have an idea and are beginning to to raise capital to see if they can get product market fit. They're typically raising from angels or seed funds, and it's a smaller amount of capital to really build a product and test out an idea. Then you start to get to, if there's milestones that are reached, you have a basic product built or some early success around users or customers. Then you enter the stage of raging early-stage venture. A lot of the decision framework for investing in this, in this stage of the market has to do with the team. This phase from there is what we call growth capital or growth stage company, where a company has some traction, they maybe have some revenue, but there's still lots of holes. It may be that they're in one market, but the real vision is to be in 100. Or it may be that, you know, it's a product where they've built out one use case, but the real vision is much more robust than that. Uh, So that's the stage that, that I invest in. And I absolutely love it. I'm very biased. But what I think is amazing about growth is that you get the chance to work with these companies where they've already, the magic is there. They've proven that they've built something very, very special. I mean, most venture-backed businesses fail. So it is the real, like, very best that are able to raise a significant amount of growth capital, and they already have an incredible team, but they're in the position where they, with this new capital, get to recruit even more aggressively. And so you get that mix of like, some stuff is working, a lot more has to work, and there's just an energy and a fun to it that is, uh, I think, intoxicating. And that's the stage I loved operating in, and that's the stage I love investing in. Yeah.
1: You were at the go big or go home stage. That's
0: exactly right. And what's so amazing about that is you already have done amazing things, right? So yes, you've already proven something and you've built a business that matters. And you're at the stage where you say, oh, wow, this this could be so big that it changes the world. And it's not crazy to
2: either say that or believe that. So we'd love to get a little bit more concrete about the companies that you've invested in and why. So you've invested in a wide portfolio of companies from Duolingo, Stripe, of course, Chief. What exactly do you look for in companies when you're deciding to make that investment? So we look for the the rough, high-level
0: framework, um, thinking about market opportunities. There are some markets that you think about secular trends that are going to shift And therefore create big opportunities for disruptors. And then in some cases, it's totally new markets. And those are actually really fun because those are the ones that you can be even more contrarian around like, oh, we can't point to some big company or some big opportunity that exists there. But You believe in your bones and so does the CEO and and the entrepreneurs and the the whole team that something new and different can be built there. And there you're building a lot of your market thesis around trends and why um, something that doesn't exist now should exist in the future. The second big bucket is just around differentiation and product love, honestly. So it's really doing a bunch of customer research, user research, member research to find out just how much uh, the existing users love the product, why, why it's different from other companies out there, products out there. And then importantly, when you're making an investment, you really have to think about how will that differentiation sustain over the long term? What is this company going to do to to continue to add that. So a good example for me there is when I invested in Stripe, which was, you know, about five or six years ago at this point, you know, you look at the payments industry and that was a very competitive business. There were lots of existing providers. A lot of the experts, so to speak, thought like, hey, no one's really differentiated and this is more of a commodity price play. But when you really dug in and talked to Stripe customers and users and looked at the team they were building and the pace of innovation, you realize, hey, they are playing in a totally different game. They are building a platform for commerce on the internet that's going to have all sorts of different software that adds value to their customers in ways that the existing competition never could. And then the next piece I would put in the bucket of just business model. So all of this, you can actually have amazing markets, a ton of product love, user love, and the business model just doesn't work, you know, based on um, pricing or uh, economics or depending on, you know, pure software, especially with the offline world, sometimes that can get tricky. So the business model has to really work. And then, I, I'll end with this, but it's really the most important, which is the team and the people. So that is the only thing you bet on when you angel and seed invest, but it continues to be the most important thing you bet on the entire life of a company to public companies, to, to everything. Is just the strength of the leadership team, their ability to recruit and retain amazing people, and the companies that can do that always win in a disproportionate way.
2: Well, if team is one of your big criterias that you're looking at. I feel very honored that you decided to make an investment in, in us, that Lindsay and I didn't scare you off too much. You made it easy.
0: The opposite. I, I remember after our first meeting, I wrote you an email after that and said, let's do this. Here, here are the follow-ups that we have to do. But the opposite, You, you two are the exact example of passionate, driven, super smart, strategic, mission-driven entrepreneurs that we want to back. So you made it easy. Yeah. I couldn't sleep that night, which is like every time I like all my best investments, I, I have the meeting then I
2: can't sleep. So there you go. It is at this like really interesting inflection point though, of there's something like so great and promising and magical. And you're starting to see some of those early indicators or, or even, you know, consistent indicators of that. But it is this like tricky inflection point. So what are some of the kind of operational pitfalls that you have seen companies go through at this pretty important moment in the company's trajectory? The challenge becomes making sure when you move that quickly
0: that nothing breaks about the experience, that it only gets better. It can be hard to keep pace with that. Sometimes when you have uh, acquisition that, that has, you know, so many new members or users coming over, coming in the front door, it's like, how do you make sure you're innovating to keep the house as exciting and new and fresh and personalized? Because just by definition, as your scale gets bigger, there are more ways to make the experience even more personalized and better for individuals. That can be hard. So I think one of the, the things I've seen great growth stage companies do is really hone in on the metrics that really matter, that they are their absolute true north. So And that usually has to do with user or member engagement or happiness. That is always the number one. Because if you get that right, you can figure out a lot later. If that goes off the rails, it can be much more difficult.
1: And it's hard to win it's hard to win that back, right? Yeah, absolutely. If you lose consumer love, if your product doesn't have that sticky feeling, it's really hard to get people back to it. And it's hard to get those early users to come back, right? Like, people are distracted. People are busy, and they don't need you
0: a hundred percent. I think that's exactly right. What I think is remarkable is just how hard that number often is to move at all. Like, I mean, it's one of the things I've learned as a growth stage investor, when you see great engagement or or retention or enthusiasm, like if you don't have that from the beginning, you're never gonna get it. And it's hard to move that in positive directions, but it's easier, it it happens more frequently, especially in rapid scale or expanding beyond a, a core demo that that can go down. And then, as you said, Lindsay, it's really hard to build it back up. Momentum and getting fast to delivering the value of what you really believe in is a lot of what I think motivates all of us. But I always say you do that in the guardrails of just never letting your eye off customer love.
1: Layla, I want to go back to what you said earlier about the conviction you have in founders. Not to toot my horn just a little bit, but I'd love to hear what you look for and how this stage This inflection point in growth changes what leadership looks like on an executive level?
0: So, uh, look for a couple things. The first is, I love backing, mission-driven founders. I mean, all of the great founders that I've worked with are just evangelists about what they are building and believe so strongly that this product and company has to exist and that it's going to change the world in these incredibly powerful ways. That personally motivates me. (laughs) Like, I can feel it in my body. If I'm getting fired up talking to somebody, I know that I'm not alone, that when they pitch potential clients or customers, or they pitch new executives, that same passion and fire and mission is going to come through. So I think that is a huge deal. And then it also, that communication part is critical, especially in the team building side. So I look for founders that have been able, as I call it, when you can hire people that you shouldn't have been able to hire meaning it wasn't totally rational for certain executives to join your company because as we all know, like startups have a lot of risk involved and um, oftentimes the very best people are leaving very good situations, high paying jobs at awesome companies. So the best founders can... Get them to join before they should. And I think going back to our discussion around scale, it's actually critical to get the right executives to join before they, quote unquote, should, because you're growing so quickly that you need to hire for where you're going from a scale perspective, not just where you are. So I look for that. I'm a very relationship driven person. I look for someone that I'm excited to build a partnership with and that the feeling and the team I'm excited to build a partnership with and um and you know that's really important because I think that If investors are doing their job right and board members are doing their job right, especially the early and growth stage of companies, we really are extensions of the team. It should be the sounding board and the partners that can help the exec team think through tricky people, help think through org structures or strategy or just lots of different things that I've seen when it works really well. It can be, again, an extension of the team. So those are some of the things that I look for. and Yeah, it's it's very rewarding when it when it goes right.
2: Yeah. So you also mentioned early on, you know, the different phases and one of those phases after or one common phase after kind of a growth investment is going public. So can you talk a little bit? Obviously, this year has slowed down a little bit in the public markets, um, but was a pretty big year last year how do you think about whether a company that you've invested in is ready for that milestone? What are some of the things that you try to push a company to achieve before they're really ready to hit that next phase?
0: Yeah, this is an exciting transition um, from being a private company to being a public company, and it has lots of pros and cons in there. You look for a couple things. First, you look at just, is the business itself ready? So that has a lot to do with scale, it can be much more challenging to go public as a small scale company because first of all, you might not even be able to execute a successful IPO. But secondly, you just, you're not going to get good analyst coverage and it can be just a lot of pressure for not a lot of the upside. So there's a certain business profile where you can have a more positive IPO, where your revenue is in a certain stage, where your business model is clearly understood, and where you can communicate to investors what the real levers in your business are. And the main thing that they're going to want to know is, how is this business going to grow? So as a tech company, you're often you know, the best tech companies are still hyper growth since so you're, gro- you're talking to investors that are used to hyper growth and are going to want to understand, okay, in five years, what does this business look like? What are the sales and marketing economics? What signal do I have about the market size? So, the biggest challenge for hyper growth companies and going public is being able to really confidently and with a much higher degree of certainty than they operated as a private company, be able to communicate the fundamentals of their business model. So you have to have a high degree of conviction and sort of understanding how your business will grow and how you'll operate the company so that your financials can be much more predictable. And that actually is quite a big change for a lot of private companies because uh, you know a lot of private companies will operate and say, hey, we're just trying to grow as fast as we can. We're going to grow 100% next year. We'll put everything in to do it. And if they grow 120%, they're thrilled. If they grow 80%, they're like, well, that was pretty good. Um, well, you can't do that as a public company. You you know, you're issuing guidance and it's actually predictability. But I think the the growing up, so to speak, that a lot of companies go through is actually getting that operating cadence from a hyper-growth private company to a more predictable public company that usually takes, you know, 18 to 24 months from when companies start to think about, okay, we see that we're approaching the scale where we would make a good candidate for a public company. We believe in our business and our business model. Now we have to make sure we have all of the operating cadence in place to make that a reality.
1: Readiness truly feels like it is not the right word. For 18 to 24 months of deep prep on systems and storytelling and finances, that IPO readiness to me is always, it sounds a lot lighter, right? Like that is an intense change in business, change in structure, change in the way that the team has to operate go forward.
0: I love it. I think that you would have a lot of very tired finance and operations and (laughs) entrepreneurs that would say the same thing, Lindsay. They'd be like, it was like a two-year boot camp. Yeah.
1: Right? I hear readiness and I'm like, cool. I brushed my teeth and combed my hair. And this is a complete uh, change. So I want to go into the boardroom because you're on the board of some really powerful public and private companies and recently joined Chiefs Board, and we're so happy to have you. Um, And there's been a lot of conversations recently on the changing role of board members. So curious to hear from you, what does a good board look like? And how are the expectations of what those board members need to do changing?
0: Absolutely. So this is another one that I think there's a huge difference between private company boards and public company boards. As a a public company, you the board is responsible for, you know, making sure they have fiduciary responsibility to all the shareholders. So there's a lot of official governance around the audit committee, compensation committee, cybersecurity committee, just sort of making sure that that's the oversight to the management team on all of these critical functions of the company. And it's very governance heavy. Private boards, again, and it arranges, there's a large... You know, range here and how companies operate, but um, especially the early stage private boards. I've found the best ones to really be extensions of the management team. So the role is often, like when it's working well, to be a sounding board to, um, to the team on hard decisions they're making on, you know, uh, reflection on whether they have the right team and people in place. So the earlier private boards tend to be more involved in the business and the strategy and the sounding board, helping to recruit the team, helping to to be partners to the entrepreneurs and building the company. Then, as you march towards public, the governance, where you start to form committees and the governance function, I think, begins to be an important, uh, more important role. So they vary a ton, you know, they vary a ton. You're making it sound uh, a lot
2: less appealing to be on a public board. You're like, oh, it's, it's all governance, and the fun part is in the early
1: stage. Yeah. If you don't find governance sexy, you may not want to join a public board. That's my takeaway. Stay on the private
0: boards. Do you find governance sexy, Lindsay? Of course I do. Okay, well then, get your resume out there.
1: I love governance. She said. She said. (laughs) Slowly backing away from the microphone. (laughs) Exactly. So
2: going back a little bit to your focus on the growth stage of investing, one of the things that Lindsay and I are obviously looking at all the time is the distribution of who is getting the funding. The gap in deal size between women and mixed-gender founders has widened over the last decade, with women founders now receiving half the deal size on average than mixed-gender founders. So to women founders trying to navigate the later stages of investing, what advice would you give them? Or maybe the other way, are there things that you think the industry itself should change to level the playing field for women?
0: Absolutely. So a couple things that I think and I you know give this advice to all of the great CEOs and entrepreneurs that I work with around thinking about investor relationships as longer term. And I think one of the things that is important is not to sort of fall into the trap of oh let me um Be so heads down, kind of working on my business and fix all this and fix all that. And then when I think I'm finally ready, go out and try to raise money and not have had conversations and relationships with people over the long haul. So I think an important thing to do is realize you don't have to have everything figured out. You have an amazing idea with good business traction. Make sure that you have, and not to everybody, because you don't want to be talking to everybody under the sun, but to a subset of investors that you think you you're a business that fits with their sort of investing style and profile and build that relationship, keep them posted on some of the big bets you're doing and the progress you're making in the business so that, number one, you can both get feedback. And then I would say that taking that advice even further back into history is just like making sure from the very beginning that you're partnering with people who are going to help you on that whole journey. So there are early stage investors that I've seen be enormously helpful to their portfolio companies in introducing them to the right growth stage investors, helping them build those relationships and helping coach them on the type of milestones they think they're going to have to reach in order to raise future growth capital, and making sure you have some of those people in your corner from the beginning. Because if you don't, it's like anything. You have such a disadvantage versus other people in the ecosystem. Um, So it's like when we, you know, one of the things we've done at Capital G in trying to recruit a more diverse team, as an example, is making sure that wherever we can, we eliminate the advantage that certain groups have on like, interview prep and chatter about what jobs are available and all that if just tried to crack that open and have like mentorship for people like way in advance of when they'd apply and information lines way in advance of when they'd apply so that when the final interview happens, it's a slightly more equal situation, even though it's very hard to get to, to that, but a slightly more fair. And we've seen like great results from that. And I think of funding as similar, that there's always going to be the entrenched majority of groups that are so advantaged in this because of their networks and the knowledge they get through networks and um, anything we can do to try to reverse that and level the playing field more earlier, the better people will be positioned when they actually go to raise.
1: Yeah. And of course, with Chief, you know, our goal and our mission is to get more women into these leadership roles, keep them there, because we know that when there is diversity at these higher levels, change has an exponential effect, right? And I think in VC, 12% of decision makers are women, and like 2% and change are founding partners. So really quickly would love some advice for women or people with intersectional identities who are trying to break into investing VC and hitting that wall.
0: Yeah, and this is something I'm very passionate about and I've seen, you know, just for myself for being the only woman in many board rooms <laughs> and many and often competing only against men. It's a very important thing to change, to change the entire ecosystem. And I think there is some positive momentum, but not nearly enough. So the best advice I can give is to start investing as soon as you can if you want to be an investor. I say that with great humility, knowing that, I would have only been able to start investing personally very recently, but I have I learn a lot through my own angel investments, like I learn a lot through my growth investments. So I think even if it's a small amount of money, I mean, I've been involved in a lot of efforts, for example, to, to try to open up cap tables to women and underrepresented groups and allowing them to write significantly smaller checks than anyone else would be able to write in the spirit of trying to get um, new people into the ecosystem and learning in that way. So even if you have a small, very small amount of money of your own that you could invest in Angel or get to know people starting companies and figuring out like how could could you help them in some way that you have a skill as an operator and ask them in exchange to see their pitch deck and understand how they're pitching and beginning to talk with investors, I would say that hit rate of the number I have, have an enormous amount of people that have come to me and asked me, like, how do you get into investing, all that? And if I ask them the simple question, have you ever invested your own money or your own time in helping an entrepreneur to raise money? Those that have said yes have like a 10x chance of getting an actual job at an institutional investor because it's like anything. It's like you're putting your time and your money where your mouth is in terms of wanting to do it.
1: I was going to say, you have to put a little bit of money where your mouth is. And if not a little bit of money, then some sweat equity. Time.
0: Time or money. Time or money.
1: Well, time is money. Exactly. Time
2: is money. There you go. There you go. It's
1: great advice.
2: (laughs) Well corrected. Yeah. I love it. Well, it was amazing to have you on the show. It is amazing to have you as a new investor and part of our board. We are thrilled about starting to partner together and everything that we are doing in the future. and just really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat about an area that uh, you are clearly very passionate and very knowledgeable about. Well, the
0: pleasure was all mine. I am so thrilled to be partnering with you both and so excited to be part of the Chief community and just so bullish and excited about what is ahead for all of us. So thank you for inviting me on this show. And it was great to chat with you both as always. Thanks. Thanks, Layla. And now we know Lindsay loves governance.
2: So it's all good. It's all good. We're changing her role tomorrow to chief governance Officer of chief. (laughs) I was kidding. I was kidding. I love it. I love it.
0: All right, friends. Good to see you
1: all. Thanks so much.
2: That was Layla Sturdy, general partner at Capital G, an investing arm of Alphabet, and our new board member who led the latest round of Chief.
1: A true unicorn maker. I loved being able to sit down and dig into that process with her.
2: And I think so much of what Layla talked about is even more important today, given the current market dynamics. You know, the fundamentals of businesses and the teams who are running them, it's just even more important in the context of today's market. So her advice and perspective
1: is even more poignant today. And she makes her investing decision by looking at the founder's ability to get these amazing execs even before they think they should. So it might not be the most rational decision for these C-suite leaders to leave their cushy jobs to join a scrappy startup, But the founders and their big visions can get new executives over the line. You know, founders like us with big ideas.
2: Are you fishing for a compliment there, Linz? Always.
1: Literally (laughs) always. But
2: you are right. That point definitely struck me as well. And, you know, when we were searching for our C-suite execs, we were really focused on hiring the best from the best, which is not always easy at early stages. And it's counterintuitive and... Frankly, uncomfortable to hire up a C-level bench really early, but it's critical as the company grows to have the right people in seat even before you even realize
1: you need them. Not to mention, hiring and ramp up can take over six months to get somebody great in action.
2: But as we've experienced, when you finally get them in seat, you realize just how important it was and is to get you to the next level.
1: And when it comes to the next level, you know why I'm excited, Carolyn? We are one step closer to global domination. (laughs) If only
2: I had a dollar for every time you said global domination, I don't know that we would have actually had to do our latest round of funding. Okay, well, don't tell Layla. (laughs) But a huge thank you to Layla for joining us today. That's all for this episode of the new rules of business
1: by Chief. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante, and if you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply.
2: As a member, you'll be connected with the most powerful network of executive women across the country.
1: Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conan and Rial Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Mary Dew, Gina Moravec, Hannah Pedersen, Madison Lesby, and Jason Mack. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Lindsay Kaplan.
2: And I'm Carolyn Childers. Thanks for listening.